If chocolate is your weakness, the real chocolate decadence of Flava Naturals Performance Dark Chocolate can be your strength. Extensive research demonstrates the remarkable benefits of daily cocoa flavanols on brain and heart function, including a recent Harvard study showing a 27% reduction in cardiovascular death. The FDA recently issued a qualified health claim saying that high flavanol cocoa powder may help prevent cardiovascular disease. It may even be a helpful tool in managing cognitive decline. Flava Naturals Dark Chocolate Bars and Cocoa Powder deliver five to nine times the flavanols of typical dark chocolate, with great flavor and minimal sugar. Their secret is sourcing premium, high flavanol cocoa beans and processing them naturally. The result is decadent dark chocolate with the flavanol levels needed to fuel brain and cardio performance. I use it every day. To order, just go to flavanaturals.com. As an intelligent medicine listener, you can get 20% off site-wide for a limited time. Just use code SAVE20 at checkout at flavanaturals.com. Welcome back to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. We're talking to the author of Evolution Gone Wrong. It's a book about uh, how some of the things that are going on in our bodies are the result of evolution, but they don't work that well for us. And uh, we have many examples of that in the book. It's a great book. It's a great book. Uh, you know, I recommend it to uh, any aspiring biology student, you are a wonderful teacher, I'm sure, in person because uh, you don't just provide people with dry factoids. Uh, you tackle interesting questions and you give great examples. So uh, his contention is that evolution is a compromise between conflicting imperatives, an example of which is uh, having a big brain. Well, if you have a big brain, you got a big head. That makes it harder to support by your spine. It also makes it harder for women to give birth. It makes it downright dangerous. But I guess uh, the big brain won out in the competition. Uh, it's you know it's kind of like uh, people in a company saying, coming up with different suggestions and like one idea wins out uh, to the detriment of others that are pretty good ideas, but just you know turns out that one takes priority, doesn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right, and it 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 starts right away in the book in the the tooth chapter because once that big brain sort of started rolling, it allowed us to to process our food in ways that they, we just had never processed it before. We you know, the the brain becomes really big, and I mean, and with the hands free now, we can use use these hands. Actually, you know, the hands were free for for quite some time before the brain kind of got big. So it's almost like the the body needed an outlet, and once the hands were free, then all of a sudden the brain sort of could explode in size. And you took those two things, and all of a sudden people figured out how to cut up their food and how to start a fire. And as soon as you could process food in that way, well, he didn't need a giant, large, powerful jaw anymore. And so the jaw weakened over time and, and pretty, it didn't, you know, it didn't take that long until the teeth didn't fit that well in it. They're independent structures. You can't food was softer. You didn't have to tear as much. Food uh, was softer. You didn't have to tear it. That's right. And and you bring a pot into the equation. Now you can just, I mean, that, that wasn't until relatively recently, but you bring a pot in and, and now you can just cook the thing all the way down to mush. You practically don't even need teeth. Mm -hmm. And and as a consequence, they, the jaw shrunk as, as mutations sort of got built into that line that didn't get selected out. And, and now you have teeth that don't fit that well in the jaw. They are shrinking. They're, you know, they've shrank considerably in, in the last 10, 20, 30,000 years, but they haven't caught up yet 
And as a consequence, most of us have to have a few pulled out. I'm having my last wisdom tooth pulled out in two weeks, actually. That's right. Yeah. Wisdom teeth are considered like a, an anomaly. Like uh, you haven't had your wisdom teeth out. Like what's what's up with yeah. you? you know? Yeah. Mine, mine, were, mine fit perfectly in there until about, you know, they often erupt rather late. And mine erupted when I was, I don't know, 18, 19 years old. They all came in. My teeth were, were all fitting in pretty pretty straight and nice and everything. And then all, all the wisdom teeth came in and mashed That's why they call them wisdom around. teeth. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You have to be you have to be the wise nineteen year old that we all were. <laughs> exactly. Another example of something that's kind of an evolutionary compromise that doesn't always work is our um, swallowing apparatus, uh, and that has resulted in uh, innumerable tragic deaths due to choking. And uh, you know, you look at the statistics, and they're just uh, appalling. Uh, what about our uh, evolution and our anatomy predisposes us to choking? Yeah, just having the entryway to the to the esophagus right next to the entryway to the trachea is just such a fascinating quirk of human evolution, and it's it's all driven by the fact that you know you go back far enough, and and vertebrates first evolved in the water, and when they came out of the water, when the lung evolved, it evolved as an out pocket of the digestive system. It evolved from the digestive system, hmm. so all that anatomy is just sort of tied right there next to itself. Obviously, it would make a lot more sense for the tube for your food to be miles away, just coming mm -hmm. right out of your yeah. abdomen or something. It should just be miles away from the tube for your air. But because of the the nature of our evolution, the, the two openings ended up right next to one another. And the most fascinating aspect of that for me is that there, there, there kind of was a fail-safe built in. The, the epiglottis closes down i i describe it in class mm -hmm. like a toilet seat covering exactly. a toilet seat kind of covering up the tree or, or, or the, the valve in your toilet you know that flips yeah, up exactly. and down exactly. yeah exactly it's like having a yeah like the flapper valve in your toilet that's yeah. a good way to think of it uh -huh. so we have like a flapper valve there in the toilet that's supposed to keep anything from going you know down the wrong pipe but um you know when we swallow but in human evolution all of that anatomical apparatus lowered considerably and, and of course, that drives another fantastic why question. It's all yeah, much lower in the throat in humans. And the, the leading thought about that is that it, it is what facilitates speech. If you don't mm -hmm. have that, if you don't have that space yeah. above the larynx, you, you can make noise and certainly mm -hmm. other animals can make noise, but you cannot form words without adequate room above above the larynx, above yeah. the voice box. And and so that that's another one of the, I, I like how you put it, how sort of you have all these people in the room and one idea kind of wins out at the cost of all others. Right. Well, that idea, the ability to, to do that is is obviously incredibly advantageous. You think about how that would have helped us organize you know, societies and organize hunting parties and, and things of that nature. So obviously, incredibly beneficial to and a relatively recent uh, uh, development in evolution because yep. you know evolution we're talking about often hundreds of thousands and millions of years and it's thought that the Neanderthals, which maybe I don't know, hundred thousand or two hundred thousand years ago, had limited speech capabilities. So this the anatomy of the throat had to change to accommodate the our exquisite ability to articulate a lot of sounds. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and and arguably, I'm, I I think it's interesting to think about the aspects of our behavior and our anatomy that 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 are the most human that that make us the most human. You can make an argument for controlling fire. You can make an argument for 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 religion and music and art and all these things. And but for me, the the ability to 
to speak and communicate in the way we do is has to be very close to the top of the list. And it is fascinating that it, it wasn't all that long ago. It, I mean, if you sort of place the dawn of humans as a species, either two or 300,000 years ago, depends on who you ask, it, 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 the evidence suggests that for at least, say, half that time, maybe even longer, we were not able to, to speak in the way that anywhere near like we are able to now. Do we have any insights into why uh, so many kids need glasses? I mean, I was the first kid in my class. I really exemplify this because I was the first kid in my class to have both glasses and braces. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I had flat feet, so I had to wear orthopedic shoes. That's another one we can yeah. get into. Uh, but, uh, you know, I overcame it and I'm functional, I think. And so, uh, what is it about uh, our evolution that has made us have failing vision. I mean, that can't be advantageous. No, that's it's, it's certainly not. It's funny to hear you say that because for me, that all went fine as a kid and then it all just seems like as I get older, like as I got older, then once I got to be 40, I had to have braces and now I have to hold my... I, I, I refuse to put on the cheaters, but I, I'm having to hold whatever I'm reading farther. I have really long right. arms, so yeah. I can still... I awesome. can hold it really far away, so it's still in focus, but it's getting to the point where it's so far away that it's becoming hard to read. So in the next couple of years, I know I'm going to have to give up and put on, the, put on the cheaters. But yeah, vision is such an interesting one because so many of the... The anatomical features I discussed in the book are, you know, anatomical difficulties are due to relatively recent changes to to how we, you know, work our way around Earth. You know, that changed bipedalism isn't that all that long ago, and the big brain isn't all that long ago. But but the the transition from water, <laughs> where the eye evolved, to land is hundreds of millions of years ago. It's 375 million years ago that vertebrates crawled out of the water, and that for me is the 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 big difficult moment that the eye had to overcome. It went from this wet environment where it had evolved for a hundred million years as an, as an eye in the, where, where everything, the, the, there's liquid inside the eye, there's liquid outside the eye. It all worked well in the water. You take that animal and you put it on land and all of a sudden you make that eye work in the air. And that was a really difficult thing to ask the eye to do. And I, I imagine the first animals that crawled upon the land had pretty blurry vision. It was obviously mm -hmm. Not completely blind, and that was they were better off than an animal that was totally blind. So I like to talk to my students about you can't you can't just start over with evolution. You have to work with what you have, and a little bit of function, lousy function, is better than no function. Mm -hmm. And so the eye kind of just kept muddling along, and and what that means is that due to that sort of environmental transition, the eye has always had kind of a difficulty getting the length. Perfect. So when the refraction changes, the air, you know light travels differently through air than it does through water, and that means the the length of the eye has to be different in in on land than it does in water, and and that's something that that still for a lot of people has not you know totally worked itself out, and it's a great example of where we where we really bring the issues upon ourselves because a lot of evidence suggests that if you want the length of your eye to develop to the correct length, it needs natural light during the developmental years mm. to do that. And yeah. if you just stick a kid in the basement all day playing yeah. video games for all those developmental years, that eye has almost no chance of developing. Today. Well, I, I was a bookworm, so I, you know, I think that explains yeah. it. And, right, so, and, and you, exactly. <laughs> so you needed to be a bookworm under a tree was the, was the trick. Exactly. <laughs> uh, how, how does some of these principles apply to uh, psychological diseases? Uh, because there's actually a, a branch of uh, evolutionary science, which is uh, evolutionary psychology, where they look at uh, 
psychological traits and, and psychiatric conditions as being kind of a, an outgrowth of um, what was tendencies that perhaps were adaptive at one point and that have become maladaptive. It's a really interesting idea. It's not one I got into the book, uh, in, in, into in the book. I think you could probably almost have a whole other book's worth of materials about sort of just the the aspects of our neural development that that have sort of spiraled off into other directions now that we, I mean, it's a really interesting idea to think about sort of anxiety and, and things of that nature where it was, of course, necessary in the past to remember, you know, traumatic and difficult events and, and to compartmentalize those things so that you could survive through the next time it happened. And, and, and that has a huge impact on the way our brains work today. So, yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Phobias, obsessive compulsive disorder, yes, exactly. things like that. Yeah. And there's just a whole other suite of you could you could almost write a a whole other book about the ways that the brain has had to to deal with a world in which it doesn't really have to worry about predators being behind every single bush like it did, but but it sort of places that that anxiety you know it it, it finds a way it finds an outlet for it in something else you know what I mean cable TV maybe cable news yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's right you know. Breaking news story. You know, the yes, COVID yeah, we, exactly. We, we have to have something to be, to, they're always throwing us something to be fearful about or something to tap into that inherent fear and anxiety. Right. Uh, also, there are certain diseases which uh, may be a reflection of uh, something that once was adaptive but no longer serve us, examples of which are, are sickle cell disease and also, uh, people have an iron overload condition, hemochromatosis. Uh, yeah, can you yep. speak to those yeah. situations. Yeah, I talk about sickle cell a lot in class. Sickle cell is such an interesting one because if you're a, if you're just a carrier, so sickle cell to have sickle cell anemia, you have to sort of have you know both of the sickle alleles. If you're so, you have to be homozygous with, for the sickle cell trait. If Two you hits. just have one, if you just have one of the alleles, um, and then the other one being normal for normal shaped red blood cells and, and normal and sort of normal hemoglobin carrying capacity. If you just have one of the alleles, you're just a carrier. And for the most part, carriers can live an absolutely normal life. They just have cells that are, you know, just maybe a little bit sickled, but doesn't really affect their ability to move oxygen around. And the, the incredible thing about it is that in places where malaria is, is a significant issue, the, the little, protozoan, so it's carried by a mosquito, the protozoan that is carried by the mosquito that causes malaria for reasons that I also don't think we totally understand, it cannot get into and wreak havoc in a sickled or even partly sickled cell the way that it can in a normal cell. Mm. So in places where malaria is common, it is highly advantageous to be a carrier of sickle cell anemia. It's obviously not advantageous to end up with both copies, but because it's advantageous to have a single copy, you end up with kids that are born with, with sickle cell anemia that, that get a copy from both parents. So there are cases like that that, that still work their way around the, the globe where these kind of traits don't work themselves out because they provide an advantage. To me, one of the most interesting pieces of that is I've looked at some of the models of what the climate, you know, with climate change, yeah. there are so many parts of North America where those where the mosquitoes that that carry the protozoan can't really survive because the winters are too harsh and it's not quite warm enough and if you look at models about what the climate of the 
of the North America is going to be like in 2050, mm-hmm. 2060, 2070. There are a lot of people that are predicting a return of malaria yeah. to many to many parts of North America. I think there was a historical period where uh, there was a warming uh, in Europe and uh, malaria uh, took hold in in the UK in in England. Yeah, uh, and I've. And in fact, I've, there was also, I mean, we, we've heard the legend of the draining of the Pontine swamps to found modern Rome. There used to be malarial swamps uh, where Rome now stands. So, uh, and I, you know. I feel like there's a, a bit of a history of it, too, in this country where, yeah. and I don't know the, I don't know the dates, but I, I've, I've read some accounts of of you know in in parts of the eastern seaboard where you you know where you get to sort of dc and below where and south of there where mm-hmm. malaria used to be kind of a commonly an issue and then i don't know if thing i don't know if they eradicated the mosquito or if the climate changed enough that the the mosquito can't be supported but and it but became it, the it basis for like slavery to, to some extent because you know when they imported uh, at first they thought well we'll get some irishmen to come down and work in our uh, plantations they're poor and they'll do it uh, you know, so we'll take them down and we'll, you know, as indentured servants or slaves, uh, didn't work out well. And the early, the early colonists yeah. uh, discovered that uh, more robust human stock came from Africa where they were resistant to the diseases in South America and the Caribbean. So, uh, yeah, there you have it. Uh, this is what I think is so interesting about these topics is that they can, they quickly spin off into things that fall well outside the realm of biology. That's what I, I loved about writing the book is that I got to learn about all these features of 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 human culture and society that I had no idea sort of in, impacted our biology to the degree that they do. Well, it's a great book, and I recommend it uh, highly. Uh, you're going to learn a lot about biology, and you're also going to learn a lot about uh, your body uh, in an enjoyable format because the book is just really well written uh, and, uh, you know, doesn't read like a, you know those dry textbooks that I had to pour through. Uh, I might have become a better biology student if I'd uh, taken some of your courses. So I'm thanks really, very much. I'm really happy to hear that. That's, that was exactly the goal. And right in the book, I, I, I teach so much and you get so much feedback in the classroom just right away by looking at the students and seeing if, you know, if anybody's falling asleep, you know you're doing something wrong. So when I, when I would come back up to the office and, office and work on writing, I, that was the whole goal was to make it engaging and, and, and something that – that people wanted to flip to the next chapter right away because they thought the last was interesting. So I, I really appreciate that feedback. The book is Evolution Gone Wrong, The Curious Reasons Why Our Bodies Work, or in parentheses, Don't Work. Alex Bezaridis is the author. And uh, if you want to take a great biology course, uh, he took some time off to write the book, but he's uh, going back into the classroom at Lewis and Clark State College in Lewiston, Idaho. Looks like a pretty place around on the Snake River, right? That's right. We this time of year we we take the paddle boards out and we float down both the snake and the and if you're feeling more bold you float down the clear water which flows right into the snake river right here in town. It's a little colder and has a few more rapids to play in. So so we spend our summers out on those rivers. That's right. Too bad Lewis and Clark didn't have paddle boards made out of uh, lightweight fiberglass <laughs> composite uh, carbon. Yeah, they would have really had a they would have had a lot of fun for the last couple months of their journey. I think if they'd have had a paddleboard. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. All right, thanks very much for joining us. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. You know how important it is to ensure that your supplements are genuine, safe, and effective. That's why I partnered with Fullscript, an online dispensing platform that 
only offers curated professional-grade brands that I know and trust. The very same supplements that I prescribe to my patients and take myself. Never counterfeit or expired, always stored and shipped correctly. Just go to DearHoffmanStore.com to start your free Fullscript account. Buying through Fullscript offers fast shipping, optional refill reminders, a mobile-friendly site. It's safe, secure, and HIPAA compliant and offers world-class support. Fullscript also gives you access to my custom targeted supplement protocols that combine the products that I recommend to address specific needs, heart health, immune support, and much more. Just go to DearHoffmanStore.com to sign up for your free Fullscript account. You'll get access to the supplements and features you need to help you achieve your wellness goals. That's DearHoffmanStore.com. DearHoffmanStore.com. 